Greetings, dear listeners. If you were hoping for the soulful tones of Craig Brewer, you will be sorely disappointed. Craig has sons who are accomplished athletes who threaten him every morning and take his lunch money. Of course, they call it their lunch money. Stereotypically, they are only too happy to cruelly prevent him from uh, participating in this nerd porn podcast. Right now, they are probably passing his microphone between them as Craig runs back and forth saying, come on, guys, come on, give it back. Actually, he's the videographer at a football game right now, which is, of course, the nerdiest thing you can do on a football field. So it's just me today. But but wait, wait, wait. Stop looking for the next podcast in your saved list. It won't be just me. I'm going to shoot the flow of gases on a large scale with the great Joan Gordon, author of the 1986 critical tome on Wolf's career and fiction up to that point. And that was not even the start of her 40-year career writing about science fiction. In the show notes, I'll put up the ISFDB link to a pretty comprehensive bordereau of her episteme. I gulled her into this conversation with the promise that she could talk about chapters five and six of The Shadow of the Torturer, the ones with Rudison and Olden. And we, and, and, and we did. But once I had her in my examination room, I gave her the full boot and extracted from her all the truth and penitence I could. But Joan talks about the Book of the New Sun the way I talk about the Book of the New Sun and everything else that Wolf did. That is, with an eye to everything else Wolf did. So there are mild spoilers about peace and the fifth head of Cerberus and tracking song and out just about anything else, I suppose. I think if you've subscribed to this podcast, you're going to like it. And if you don't, you can have your money back when the manager gets back from vacation. So just sit back and enjoy. So you've retired. Now, obviously you haven't retired as a writer. What, do you, what, what were you doing in Long Island? Well, I was teaching up until five years ago. And, but I've continued being a, um, an editor at Science Fiction Studies and, you know, being active in conferences and writing. Are you from Illinois? No, I don't know where I'm from. Um, Tennessee, Ohio, Iowa, Maryland, and so on. And, and, and where are you from? Well, that's a good question. Um, I grew up uh, for most of my, my youth in Ohio. Now I'm in Austin. Our, our daughter's in Austin. I, yeah, I like it here. Austin is possibly the friendliest big city in Texas. But expensive as time goes on. Yeah. But th- of course, that's something that's happening really for almost pretty much every big city in Texas. They're all growing very, very fast. Austin, it's very noticeable. So Austin, is, it, with its growth, is kind of in conflict with the way it thinks about itself. And I think that Gene thought of himself as really from Texas. Uh, yeah, didn't he say that he that became his hometown, even though he's, I mean, he spent almost all his life outside of Chicago, right? 
Barrington. He lived in Barrington yeah. a long time. And then just at the end, he moved down to Peoria. And, you know, at one point, um, all sorts of people were in Peoria, like um, Phil Farmer and his wife were there, I think. So it would have been really nice, but not by the time Gene moved there. I was going to ask whether Peoria is becoming kind of a writer's retreat. I don't think so. I think that was just sort of at one time, a few people were there. Well, that's how it happens. That's how Austin became like a big music place. Well, and also it was a a science fiction place too for a while because Lou Shiner was there and Bruce Sterling, right? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's a, yeah, it was the place, you know, where a lot of, you know, artsy people would come. Although Houston really had that, that out reputation for a while too. And there was a university there. Right. Yeah. Well, that helps. So you can have a writing program and not only do yes. people take the courses, but people teach the courses. So exactly. Iowa City yeah. had the yeah. famous writers workshop. Yeah. And so on. So did you ever teach? Have you taught any no, workshops? Because because I don't write fiction. And yeah. I, I, mean, I have tried it. Yeah. But what you do is, is working out a career and what you do is complicated, yeah. right? And when I went back and started to do science fiction as something other than a secret vice, <laughs> I, um, you know, the, then to try to find a job where I could do it was tricky. Now, you did... You did something very similar to your Gene Wolfe book with uh, right. Joe Holden. And that was right? sort of my dissertation, except I had to put a lot of blah, blah in it to make it acceptable. <laughs> oh, okay. But I was going to ask about how that occurred, because that's the, that was like the earliest thing I knew of that you Right. Had. And that, I, that probably was maybe the earliest thing that was published, is the, um, the Starmont on Joe. The, the writer of, of Forever right. War, War and, and, and such. Right. And Forever War is what he wrote. He, I think this is correct, got his MFA for. They dissed him there in the in the workshop, of course. But For, for what reason? Science fiction, genre writing. But it was Joe who said, why don't you see if you can write to Gene Wolfe? Oh, yeah. yeah. That was his idea. Well, all, the co-teacher of the science fiction course was Larry Martin, um, who taught linguistics. And he and Joe were very good friends. So it may have been more Larry who was encouraging that. But um, that was when I started writing to Gene and building up this interview that ended up somewhere I never questioned why, you know, why after after uh, the first book, you did right. the Gene Wolfe book. I often wondered how it was that you just didn't end up with with a library of those well, that along those lines. I kind of hate writing books. And I was going to write the one on Gene Wolfe for University of Illinois. And I just put it off and put it off. And I finally begged out of it. I just... And yet I have a whole bunch of short essays now, a whole bunch, maybe three or four, about Gene Wolfe and libraries and archives and memory. Mm -hmm. 
And so those could go together with a bunch more, I suppose, and then they would be a book. But I have no idea who would publish it. Yeah, well, it's a it's a different world. It is. But when you but, but in 1986, that you know there was there, there were no blogs, there were no there was no Wikipedia no. page on on Gene Wolfe or or any of these science fiction writers. There was no encyclopedia of science fiction, and your you know your little biography of Gene Wolfe and and essays on each of his. Uh, major writings that was what you that, yeah. that was it and you know, that was like a life well, and interestingly or infuriatingly wikipedia had nothing about that little book until um nigel at my request put it in <laughs> well you know wikipedia is wikipedia i remember orson scott card mentioning one time that he uh he there was some some fact that was wrong on his Wikipedia page, so he went in himself and and fixed it, and then you know the the editors just just changed it back. So he said, "Well, well, whatever." <laughs> but yeah, that's a, that that is a little bit unconscionable not to have have your book as as, as part of the Gene Wolfe you know library of uh, criti- critical fiction. Well, critical and non-fiction. of course, as far as I can tell, everyone who writes about Gene disagrees with everyone else. Yes. Well, that's what I do. (laughs) And I wish I could remember the name of the man who spins the religious biblical allegories, Gene Wolfe. And those are always online. And his name is something like Bosky. No, Borsky. Borsky. Robert Borsky. I always disagree incredibly with him because they sound sort of persuasive, (laughs) but the tone, he he arrives at conclusions that are tonally just completely wrong. Yeah, I, I don't want to say anything bad about Borsky because I'm because whatever I say, I'm sure well, someone sure. will say about me. I mean, me. That, that's so. how this is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, and and we have no one to blame but Gene for that. Really, the uh, it's his his fiction kind of invites and, that, and he insists that it doesn't. Yeah, I know. <laughs> He says, "I'm not trying to be a, a you know obscure. It just doesn't carry." <laughs> well, you know, Peter Wright. Early on, he was at a science fiction research association meeting in suburban Chicago, and he gave a paper on how Gene Wolfe was obscure on purpose, just to frustrate people. <laughs> um, Atterbury and I both sat him down and said, "No, that's not how this works." And uh, but we never persuaded him. So, <laughs> and I, I believe that's his theory to this day. Well, you know, once again, we have no, no one to blame, but absolutely. You. But that, <laughs> but yeah, I, I is what if you were someone? I think that if a writer is trying to be obscure. He really, he, he, it'll, it would fail. It wouldn't be successful the way Gene. I think does of it. him sort of like with Melville and something like The Confidence Man. That it's all there if mm-hmm. I could just figure it out. I, I, I used to believe that, but I believe that really, it's not quite that. I believe that there are secrets that one 
could not be expected to tweeze out in exclusion of all the other reasonable theories yeah. in competition with it. Yeah. Oh, ahead. I have a couple of things to say about that. And one is that once the writing leaves the author, it's too bad. And <laughs> if you can support it with what's in the text, and if there's nothing in the text mm-hmm. that disproves it, then it is a true right. theory. It may not be the author's, yeah, but it is a true theory, that a legitimate theory. Yeah. And then the other thing I thought about, and, and I was really thinking about this a lot when I was huh, writing the first chapter, which I was able to write for the book that will never happen. Um, and that is, in many ways, he is an autodidact. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And so his body of knowledge is not the standard body of knowledge, but it's made up of all sorts of things that he's read and are therefore obvious to him. Yeah, I would love to get a look at his library. <laughs> That's, I've, I have, a, I have a, a, a virtual library in, his, in my head of what he's read, but you know, I can't, I can't prove any of it, but I have, I do have a sense of, of certain books that I think, Oh, he must've been using this as a standard. He must've been, this must've been in his mind. That, um, the letters home from Korea, um, he Mm -hmm. asks for books from his mother and those are a nice clue. So, um, yes, I think you could look at all those sorts of sources, um, various collections of myths, and I think Frazier, for instance. Um, well, I, I've always felt like uh, like Graves, the Greek yeah. myths must yeah. be something. I, I, I picked out some things that I in the um, in Soldier of the Mist that made me say, "Oh, wait, this he <laughs> must have read this note in, from." But he's Robert also Graves. nutty about and, uh, ships, for instance. You know what? Here's what I've said: it's in another universe. There is a, a there is a world where young people are as nuts about seafaring stories as in this world they are about boy wizards. Yeah, and in that and in that world, Gene Wolfe is a god <laughs> <laughs> because it's something. There's something when he gets puts people on a boat. Something happens on that page. Yes, I you know a number of years ago I went to Sweden. And I saw, of course, I can't remember names of anything, but I saw the ship that had sunk and that they um, have rebuilt in a huge museum. And so I sent Gene a booklet about it. And he had a whole thing about why it had sunk and how they could have avoided it sinking. I mean, he knew everything about it. Yeah. Yeah. He probably, you know, everyone has this list of, of myths, books and, and pulp science fiction books they assume is in his library, but he, he probably has a library full of books about, about, about historic yeah. ship sinkings and, and ship battles. In addition. In addition. Yeah. Oh yeah. He definitely has the other things or, but he, or he may have, but you know, like for the pulp science fiction, he may have consumed that and just moved on, but he probably, he probably, uh, is uh, you know I have I have books that I've read and, and said oh, that was good and and you know 
I, I would never, if, if they wore out, then I would never replace them. But then I have other books that are on my, that say, oh, you know, something happened to that. I, I better get another one for its place well, on the shelves. I don't think he has a Severian memory or had a Severian memory, but it wasn't like the soldier of the mist either. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I th- you know, I think I just feel like he was really stewing in a lot of, uh, of science fiction. I, I, what I really love is reading his stuff and then, then, you know, getting interested in, in a word or, or a concept and then discovering, Oh wait, that was really fleshed out pretty, yeah. pretty deeply in, in the small pulp uh, book. I thought, I bet he, I bet he was thinking about that to some extent. And, and he's got the high art as well, you know, looking over the stuff for our purported subject tonight. Um, Borges keeps coming up. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and well, I'm, I mean, Borges is all the way through. Those are the kinds of games yes. that Gene plays too. But you know, a, another writer might have said, "Okay, I'm, I have, I've got this story. I need to have the the uh, character bring some books." So to this prisoner, okay. So these are the books that I that I got, and these are the names, and this is what the books are like. But you know, Gene, when he he when he got to that point, he just roped in this whole, this, basically Borges's whole genre in in two yes. chapters. You've got the the library that has every book, the book that has every word, the uh, the, the he has a museum that has every well thing. and and labyrinths, <laughs> and, uh, you know, from Tristola right, yeah, through the library, it's all labyrinths. And so is the whole book, you know. I, what is it I read recently? The, the 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 labyrinth that protects a treasure, and it turns out the the labyrinth <laughs> is the treasure. <laughs> so the, oh, when I was thinking about your your book, I was remembering how much I enjoyed your Operation oh. Aries, <laughs> <laughs> because without that without that chapter, I would have had this idea that. Gene Wolfe had had this Robert Johnson uh-huh. experience where he went out to the crossroad. He did Operation Aries. He sold and, his soul. Yeah. And then he sold his soul to become the greatest writer and then wrote Fifth Head of Cerberus. But, you know, when I read the write up on it, like, oh, no, no, no. First place, he wrote it in 65. Yeah. And then he spent two years building it out through up to 67. And then. After that, he, you know, he they basically he basically just chopped it up for the publisher, and so he's had six years of learning to write and learning to write long fiction. And it, and it wasn't Robert Johnson so much as it was Damon Knight. Well, or it's not the devil; it's Damon right. Knight. Right, and and um, oh, the mountains like mice. That was it. It strikes me as where he really started to learn what he was really all about. Why do why, why do you say that? Because it begins to um, withdraw and not give all the information. It be it begins to use those sorts of metaphors that start to be one thing and turn into something else. Um, it begins to develop this sort of spiritual level. And all those things are just beginning to happen in that story. I have a friend, Bill Johnson, who has written a few pretty successful stories. And he had Gene Wolfe for Clarion, who 
who basically told him to, you know, I guess leave out everything you can get away with leaving out. <laughs> well, I don't know why people say he's obscure. <laughs> well, it's a mystery, but only give what you have to give. So, um, and, and that's starting up, I think, in that story. And it's certainly not the case in Operation Ares, which just kind of dodges around and doesn't make a lot of sense and stuff. But it is, it is obviously a Gene Wolfe story. It's like, yeah, yeah, it is. It's, it, the plot is there. The elements are there. You can see all of the things he's interested in. He likes it. Just right. He just can't quite do it. It's the the uh, the you know the 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 composition was fine, but he couldn't play it yet. So you. Uh, have you read the um, the sort of college things? But but you know they're like really sort of riffs on very silly mysteries, and they'll hinge on something like knowing obscure facts about guns. <laughs> yeah. So so they're that sort of Holmesian. Well, if you knew that the hmm has a Something or another bullet, well then. Right. <laughs> it's kind of an encyclopedia brown. So, so you know, he worked his way up to it. He didn't burst out of Minerva or out of Zeus's head all at once. No, but, no. That's true. Well, true. And and I I read a uh, review of of uh, Joanna Russ's when she when of Operation Ares and basically. She damned it with 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 really faint praise. She just says, <laughs> a lot of people call the books like this promising, but the truth is, I know what he can do <laughs> when he writes, and this isn't it. And the uh, um oh, one other thing, while we while I because I've got you, and I'm I'm, gonna, I'm leading you back to um to to your Gene Wolfe book again. Yes. So Joan, you're a woman. I am. <laughs> well, I'm glad you decided. To, I, I didn't mean to out you. Well, but, you know, it uh, can be troublesome for people. <laughs> uh, you have a really interesting take, or you did <laughs> 30 years ago, on uh, Gene Wolfe and um, yeah, I know, and, and sexism. What do you think of it? <laughs> you, you want? Do you have any desire to? Uh, oh, sure. Refine that you at know, all, I didn't want him to be sexist, but. Really, mm -hmm. I think he always saw women in an archetypal sort of way. You mean Severian or, or Jean? Jean. Uh, you know, Rosemary, too. Rosemary was always idealized. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's at, his mother was idealized. I think he saw women in this sort of idealized and archetypal way, and he just did. So I didn't want that to be the case. <laughs> But I think it really is. Um, does that make him sexist? In a way, yes, it does, I guess. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm not sure if he see, saw men as archetypally. And he was certainly more comfortable writing men than writing women. Well, that's, yeah, that's definitely true. He he really, I mean, he, he really was very good at the broken narrator. And I'm not sure that his that any that he right. ever did that with a woman. Yeah, but um, but you know, <laughs> partly maybe it was coming from 
thinking about Australian lit too, but lots and lots of lost children in Gene Wolfe. And, oh, and yeah. he was an only child, and he, he said something about how when you're an only child and your parents die, um, there are no more witnesses to the forgotten land of home. And so I think that was always in there. The Book of mm-hmm. the New Sun is kind is kind of the coming of age. The second grouping is the young man coming into his own. And the third one, to some extent, is the father. It, it, this doesn't work chronologically, but that's okay. But 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 there are ways in in, in which that probably reflects how Gene was working it through in his own life and with his kids and so on. So, all right. Well, you want to, uh, we're going to talk about uh, chapter five and six about the, um, the picture gallery and uh, I'll let you take it on from there. I know that you've been, that you've recently um, written a presentation on these two chapters. It seems to me this time through that they're kind of a hologram for maybe the whole solar cycle, those two chapters. Huh. In what way? So <laughs> I'm, I'm playing with this. You know, I mean, obviously, there are these sort of hologram images, like the cube that contains everything that's in the library. But of course, the library contains everything there is. <laughs> everything, right. And Altan, too, <laughs> mind is deeper than the library. So there's all of that. And when I was thinking about this, I began from a quote from William Blake, to see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. So in order to see everything at every level, at every metaphorical level, um, hold one thing and look at it. So if you have a grain of sand, it's a hologram for the world. If you hold a wildflower, it's a hologram for the world. And then that's sort of what the library does and each of these elements of the library. So he takes the books, you know, it takes us forever to find out what's what those four books are, right? Because it's Gene Wolfe, so he just makes a gap. You know, where <laughs> yeah. here are the books, and then I'm not going to name them. And, and then you piece together most of it, and then if you read some essays and you know, and and so on, then you figure out the rest of it. Yeah, what was it he said in um, Castle of the Otter? Well, and of course, the astute reader will have realized that this other book is the is is actually right. the book of the new sun. Is a, what astute writer would have yes, figured that indeed. out? Indeed, and and um, you know, I just collected a whole bunch of hints, I guess. Um, you know, comparing it to the Library of Babel of Borges and Wolf talking about um, any library being like a Klein bottle. So this folding in of the library, the sense that the library is larger than the world that contains it, which is from um, books in the book of the new sun. So, um, so that makes it sort of a hologram. 
it, it's exploring all of that stuff. By that point in the story, he's brought himself back to life and Tristula back to life, right? Aha! He remembers having uh, the Undine throw right. him to the bottom of the river. And the question was, uh, did, did he die? We were kind of working on the theory that, yeah, I think maybe he died, but that, whether he knows well, it or you know, not, he I don't gets know. Resur- I think he gets resurrected and I think he brings Triscola back to life. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think it's definitely yeah. uh, understood that at that point that he brings and so, back to life. You know, all of this is, there was a point at which he would say that Severian was a Christ figure, but after a while he hedged it as a Christian figure. What uh, what do you think? Well, I kind of remember him saying that um, Jesus was supposed to be a carpenter, but the only thing we know he made was a whip. So I... I think maybe he was backing away from it. Well, I mean, it might be. It might be an, kind of an Arminian view of Christ or uh, or even a Gnostic. Yeah, the Gnostics are always popping up in him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's it it feels very much like a Gnostic world. Uh, the the name Severian to at when I first saw it, all it didn't mean a saint to me. It meant a Gnostic sect, uh-huh. the Severians. And then when you get to the Book of the yes. Long Sun, well, that is a Gnostic world, right? You have a demiurge and you have a, a world that surrounds it and the world that's outside it and you people falling down into spheres for whatever whatever it means. Very Gnostic And world. Wizard Knight. Though with the Wizard Knight. Yes, yes, that also very much. Well, I want to bring it to... A, a thing that has been very useful for me in thinking about anything really that he writes, which um, is, it's a passage from the wonders of earth and sky that everything has three meanings. It's practical meaning, the reflection of the world about it, and the transubstantial meaning, which is, so like um, quadruplex allegory and um, which you see in so many of the metaphors and so much of what's going on in those two chapters. So you've got that little cube. (laughs) And so it is a hologram. That's the practical meaning. It is a hologram. Um, It seems like something futuristic in a world that seems to, that looks like it's Byzantine, but um, it's one of the signs that this is still in the far future, even though it doesn't always look like that. In Castle of the Otter, he talks about the new nothing future, the one in which humanity clings to its old home, and, you know, and waits for the money to run out. So, so, it's the holograms exist in this future, but you know, nobody real much can access them. He's kind of predicted all these um, formats that we've come up with that then die out. And so we have our floppy disks and our cassette deck. Yeah. We call it, call it data. Right. But um, so then he starts to talk in that same chapter where he's talking about the hologram 
about um, the people who eat the dead and get their memories. And so how much do you need to eat to get, right? Um, (laughs) So, and then this leads to the discussion of genetics and how genetics, the entire life is in each finger, Um, right? And and this is the part that... Very Borgian, very Borgian, right? Because you have... Entire entire man is in a, is in a tiny uh, microscope, and, and that's how holograms work. If you break them up, you know the whole thing. Is- mm-hmm. Fractal, right? And fractal, right? So, and and so that would be sort of the reflection of the world around it, meaning, and which I think for Peter Wright, that's it. For Peter, it's you know, Jeanette, It's all about passing on your DNA. Why are we born only to suffer and die to pass on our DNA? And so, and and certainly you see in that the ritual communion too, right? So then, but it's gene, so you can't just stop with Darwin and, and genetics. And yeah. Okay, so first I want to go with the sort of transubstantial meaning about the genetics in um, these two chapters, so um, that it that it has to do with um, the whole cycle. It's about spiritual growth. First Severian, then Silk, then Horn Silk. So he becomes a larger person in a spiritual sense. Gene says in an interview. Um, so to me, the genetic theme leads to this transubstantial one. Um, and so when he eats Thecla, um, he will contain her body of knowledge as well as his own, just as the cube contains the library in an insubstantial way as information. So he will have her memory, her persona and her soul as well as eating her. So, so, um, and then that's what brings it back to that quote from Blake, the claim that they're the metaphorical hologram, those two chapters. They contain the book that contains the series. That's the fourth book. The book that contains many stories from the series, Wonders of Earth and Sky. The cube that contains all the books in the library. The library that may contain all books. They contain keys to the important themes of the cycle, power of genetics, spiritual quest for love and higher truth. Um, Not to mention, which we haven't even talked about and I'm not very good at talking about, so I will try to avoid, which is the nature of time. And, you know, all of that is in those chapters. So, So that's the riff I wanted to make on that. But then... See, you can hear me flipping pages. So then, then there's fifth head of Cerberus. So, um, okay, so Marsh, is Marsh Trenchers? Excuse me, this is James interrupting my own conversation with Joan Gordon. I'm incorrigible. At this point, I attempted to summarize my own personal theory about the fifth head of Cerberus. I did a bad job, and it was off topic anyway. So at the end of this podcast, after the outro music, 
I've detailed my theory to anyone who is interested for your pleasure. Pleasure. That's the word I chose to use. There's nothing in it about the new sun, but check it out if you want. It's on you if you do. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I buy that. Because <laughs> uh, I guess I think about, um, I've played around with that middle story a lot. And one version I'm kind of liking right now is that it's a survivance story. It's, a, it's living evidence of a living culture that has been um, hidden. And, but, you know, that has been, a, the story is that there are no Annie's anymore. Uh-huh. So you don't you believe that there are no, no that the Annie's have I believe died out. that this story is proof that they're still around. Ah, but what in what way? Um, How do you think that proves? Let's see. So so I was thinking about um, Gerald Visner, who does um, Native American, is Native American, and and talks about um, Native American story and so on. Um, and he talks about the aesthetics of survivance where you create, how do I put this? Where you use metaphor to keep the culture going. So we see the survival of the Annie's, um, what Visner would say, participated by stealth and cultural irony in the simulations of absence in order to secure the chance of a decisive presence in national literature, literature, so that the stories are the act of resistance. So the story of Sandwalker and Eastwind is one of those. You know, I, I think that'll work in concert with your theory, but I, I just don't know if this, if it's exactly. And, and at one point, you said something about what Gene intended. And I've completely given up on that. So here's a, here's a story of mine, but it's about peace um, and to do with intent. <laughs> so when I wrote about peace, it was my idea that um, the stories all come about through the Rorschach tests that... Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I, oh, well, I love that. Both John Clute and Gary Wolf have convinced me that it's completely wrong and it's a ghost story. But what I've chosen is that it is both of those things. And Gene may have intended one, and I don't care. I still like mine. <laughs> well, he could, couldn't, why couldn't they both be true? Exactly. I mean, it could still be a go. In fact, I think Gene Wolfe has actually said that has actually said yes. that Weir is 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 dead. Um, but that doesn't mean that exactly. the story isn't told through Rorschach. And, and one of the reasons that I absolutely keep to that theory is that I was talking it over with my father, and he was a psychologist, and so it's a theory that mm -hmm. was developed in a sentimental way, and so I retain it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, screw you, Jane. Well, but this is the 
thing about authorial intent. But I, but I think it's defensible. I think what you're saying is defensible. And I don't think him being dead precludes that. As, as Weir says, doctors can be consulted <laughs> even after death. So, so what you're, I mean, I, I think that your, that your take on that is, well, I mean, it's, it's my default <laughs> take on, uh, on the structure of the story. It doesn't, doesn't well, mean that he's not dead. Well, you know, dead. and, and, and Clute will talk about the tree and the symbolism and, and I know that Gene knows all that stuff and that he believes in ghosts and everything mm-hmm. he's written has ghosts in it. And so I'm sure it's true. Mm-hmm. But um, in addition, yeah, no, you're. I think you're right. <laughs> it's, I don't understand why. Why does Clue think that 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 his uh, that the revelation that Weir is dead is? You know, oh, I don't know. X's out your theory. He's That's, they're not. They're not even connect. Well, yeah, you can't stop it. No. So. Someone should. So I let's. I don't know. There are so many. You know what I. Nobody talks about much, and shouldn't we? Is the Book of Gold? Isn't that wonderful? Mm-hmm. Don't we? everyone who reads that reads the uh, the Book of the New Sun loves Olden because they all see themselves in him, and that everybody's Book of Gold is different, and we all have one. At least all of us who are readers. But at later in his years, he stopped being interested so much of what was inside the books as preserving, you know, their, their outer structure. There's another way in which that's really interesting. He becomes more interested in books as objects and what, depending on how a book is, it means differently. Um, so this is another thing I thought about in there. Okay. I'll get, so Kate Hales talks about, regarding the transformation of a print document into an electronic text as a form of translation, which is inevitably also an act of interpretation. So the physical characteristics of a text are also meaning-making and influence what you consider when you analyze a book. So, for instance... um, the soldier in Soldier of the Mist is writing on a scroll and that controls the flow of information in a very different way from a book with pages. Well, that's true because you have to read it essentially from beginning to end. Yeah, and that's what he has to do every day, right? But how would that change the 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 actual meaning of a text and that let's say let's say that um moby dick was written on a scroll originally and then it was put in book form and then it became electronic with hyperlinks how would that how would that be a reinterpretation that's a that's the part of that of that theory that I've never really quite been able to get my mind around it would be have to do with the way it treats time Changing how a work means um, alters what it means, says Hales. So in one version of Moby Dick, you could not bounce between the um, definitional chapters, the chapters on 
um, kinds of whales and so on. You would have to confront them in the same order always in a way that you wouldn't have to, that, you know, they would, they would be separate in, a, in chapters in a book. I, so, the whole, so the whole book of the New Sun, you know, is rendered originally composed in a tongue that has not yet received, achieved existence into English. And many right. of the words are suggestive rather than definitive. What form was it in when it was translated? Was it the mysterious fourth book that Severian takes back to the beautiful prisoner Thecla or another edition in another form? My first edition, a later paperback, an ebook. <laughs> How the long corridors of time change this book as it traveled? Um, and of course, this translation travels from many centuries of futurity to our present, which was 1980 when it was published and is now 2019. Um, and if Borges says that the exact same words of the Quixote are completely different when reproduced in the 20th century, to when they were written originally. Well, I can actually see that because, because words are symbols. Words are, are, are kind of symbol, uh, which brings it and back. To, and to write it as a 20th century person is very different than to write it as a man of the time. Yeah, I mean, a swastika simply doesn't mean the same thing today that it meant in 19... 19- 20s when when the when the uh, national socialists uh adopted it as their flag it doesn't mean the same thing at all and you know and and today if you go to india it's a perfectly benign symbol no you can see it on on old synagogues in uh, eastern europe all over yeah but 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 words do the same thing they make the change sometimes they go from being uh, favorable to being negative, from being negative to being favorable. I think I read an article recently, British speakers often being confused by Americans' use of quite, because in, you know, in the U.S., quite is an intensifier, whereas, that, whereas you said something is, is quite good, you might not even really be uh, uh, praising it at all. So, yeah, they, I mean, just like all symbols – Words, words change. So one of the examples that Hales uses is um, a project the, called the William Blake Archive, which has digitized his work as precisely as possible to render the screen display as much like the printed book as possible. But it simply cannot be the same thing. No, it's not. It's. I mean, if 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 digitizing it uh, reinterprets it, then it, you definitely haven't gained anything by putting a different background. You, on you've it. saved it. You've made it available to people who can't see the originals. But think about how hopeless that is, because even though you may have, let's say you you were able to preserve all literature in exactly the type of paper and the type of binding they were and printing that they originally were, 
you'd still have modern people reading it. See, so you're on my side with this. I, I, I think that, that the digitization of works is far less destructive to the meaning of them than the people who are the different people who are actually Oh, I see where you're going. And that too has to be true. So, um, so that has to be true in Olton's library. Yeah. Despite his, his efforts to reserve them as, as objects. It doesn't, yeah, he doesn't, but he doesn't really care, but he's sunk into the past or he's just just like everybody else. See, I don't know if Alton is sunk into the past. He he's moved from the insides of books to the surfaces of books, um, which might which is not necessarily going into the past. It's seeing them in not that he can see in a very different way. Well, doesn't Severian when he when he encounters Alton uh, initially? What does he see? That the dead, dead yes. corpse that they were dragging out of a grave rises in front of him. Huh. So we have yet another resurrection. <laughs> well, and of course, you know what they call um, the people who um, rob graves, right? Resurrection men, yeah. We, when we did our, the chapter, first chapter, and then we, we talked to Nigel. And uh, that was one of the first thing he says, well, why didn't you bring up the, the fact that they're called resurrection men? That's a, that's a very good point, Nigel. I didn't think of that. And, uh, and he also brought up that uh, the uh, great expectations thing that, you know, Pip goes to, a, to the family yes. cemetery and immediately is forced into league with a criminal. So, Which leads us in a way because that leads to Australia, as I remember. Australia. Does a criminal end up in Australia? Yeah. Oh, 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 in Great Expectations. I was thinking of Vodalith. I said, wow, that's a great theory. <laughs> and, and then we we go back to Fifth Head, where they're called Abos, and they are people without a written culture and who have no lasting artifacts, which is to some extent of Aboriginal culture for pictographs and stuff, but they nevertheless have such a strong oral culture and mapping culture that the whole land is what they read. Gene, one thing Gene is always was always very good at is creating these um, asynchronous yeah. cultures uh, on on planets. But everybody is not all the same, and so yeah, the all of the uh, abos. In, in urban life in St. Anne, in the big cities. Yeah, they have no, they don't have any artifacts. They've, they've, uh, they've been colonized. But of course, one of the, I think one of the themes of, the, of those books is that the colonizers yeah. are themselves colonized by, by the land. And, uh, but that doesn't, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, out in the- Back uh, beyond, which is what they say in Australia. Right. It doesn't mean that they're not, you know, living their lives exactly as they as it was before. Right, and that's this business of survivance that Visnor talks about. Yeah. Anyway, but we're we're far from Book of the New Sun. That's the way about these books. A lot of the, the things that are in the Book of the New Sun, he's actually kind of addressed in his other stories, and he will continue to address 
in his later stories. And I thought I got to thinking about when you were talking about having a variety of um, beings in, in, in his worlds. There's this great scene in Tracking Song where um, the guy says "Don't something like, don't hurt me, I'm a human. And whoever's in the tree says, that's what all the animals say. <laughs> yes. Don't you think that they're, that, don't you find it interesting that all of the creatures that he encounters are vaguely primate-like? Wasn't it also <laughs> supposed to be a little bit like throwing the bride from the Troika? I think that that was one of the sources for the story. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. you know, throwing it to the wolves. Right. On St. Anne, they, they do the same thing. We don't, uh, you know, we're human. We don't eat our own, as one Abo said to another, as he began to prepare him. To and, and the cannibalism in Book of the New Sun. So many years ago, I was giving a paper at a conference in New Orleans on, I guess, Shadow of the Torture or the Book of the New Sun. And, you know, it was kind of a ruinous conference because nobody went to any of the sessions unless they were giving a paper in it. Because why would you? You were in New Orleans. Yeah. But I was at lunch and there was a nun at the table. And she said, what are you writing about? And I said, you know, shadow of the torture. And the main character is a Christ-like figure who is um, a torturer. And she just said, sounds like the Antichrist to me. Well, that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> yes, it's it's very hard to summarize uh, Gene Wolfe's story. <laughs> well, what about you know? Think about Fifth Head Service and Tracking Song. His uh, you know, as as you pointed out in in your book, he, Gene was has always been yes. an environmentalist. Yes. And I remember when I ate lunch with him, he, he wouldn't have the chicken unless it was free range chicken. He was very interested, even in, in Operation Aries. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's because that's a Gene Will story. It's so clear it's a Gene Will story. Just... And Mountains Like Mice and The Borrowed Man right at the end, that's archive and memory and environmentalism. Right. It's all still there. If you ask anyone what Gene's politics are, they always, you know, he's supposed to be the this big right winger. And, you know, that's not what he was at all. He was, he was always a populist. Well, he, I think he moved to the left for one, from Operation Aries anyway, for sure. But in addition, you know, you can't pigeonhole him. Well, I think, I think, you know, early on, I think it was, might've been like 1980. He said, he said, discussing what his politics were. And he says, I have some things I like that are left wing. Some things are right wing. I'm interested in the, the mm-hmm. concentration of power. Um, and and this is why I think he, he did not move much from that point. I heard him talking at a panel. It was just him. It's one of these panels where it was just him. And he would carry, everyone was kind of nervous at these. So he, he would have to kind of carry the discussion along. But someone did say, so what is your politics? And he kind of looked up and he kind of gave a, took a, took a short breath. <laughs> he says, the, the political system I believe in is democracy. America is not a democracy. It has never uh-huh. been a democracy. America is a republic. That means every so often we vote for who's going to rule over us. And once we have, you can know they're aware <laughs> of it. <laughs> so he was worried. What he was worried about was 
having people who were had a lot of power in one in, in concentrated hands. Yes, yeah, and I think that remained the case. But but his in Operation Ares, his politics seemed so ham-fisted <laughs> yeah. because he was not he was not the adroit writer that he was, you know, just five years yes, later. Yes, and he was more interested, I think, in the sleight of hand in, yes. in, instead of um instead of metaphor, I guess. One thing that I missed in later stuff is that he he made his writing more and more spare, and I didn't want it to be. Yeah. Well, um, he kind of came back to that in the book of the, sh- uh, yeah, the short son. I think so. But, but even so, and I've been disappointed in the one shots. I think that they are, are denser than plot wise oh, sure. than people realize they feel, they feel like, Oh, I've read it and I've understood it. But in fact, they're, they're actually more interesting and convoluted, but because of the way he presented it, I mean, almost no one, figures well, that out. I, you know, I, it's not that so much as grace. I miss the grace is always there in the novellas. Well, yeah. I, I mean that he really does shine at that, at that length, but you know, there's something like, you know, seven, seven American nights mm. is, it has a lot of that, but it's very, it's hard. <laughs> it's very hard. I feel asked, what's his, what is he like? And I said, well, if he had written, uh, uh, Murder on the Orient Express. There would be no Hercule Poirot. <laughs> we all, we, the reader would be expected to figure it out. <laughs> so, Gosh, Seven American Nights is a wonderful, wonderful. It is, uh, it is, but it's so it it's hard. <laughs> it's you got to be so careful. And he kind of did something like that, I think, in in, in the Sorcerer's House. But um, you know, it it he loses that opportunity to um, go into reverie. Yeah, see, it's reverie. Maybe it's reverie. The grace or the reverie or or something yeah. that, that I miss in a lot of the one shots. God. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of what that... So, so we have... There's Fifth Head of Cerberus. There's the Book of the uh, New Sun. There's um, Soldier of the Mist, especially. Um, and... You know, he kind of walks away from from it uh, until he gets to the book of the short sun, and I'm trying to think of if there's any what 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 are the shorter ones that kind of carry that that continue that the feel. feel that we want. Oh, I'm trying to look at my shelf, but my shelf is a mess. <laughs> well, let me look at well, mine. You know, I I mean, what I can see here is a borrowed man right in the front, and I really liked it. Yeah, I remember your review of that. That was uh, I could tell that you you did really appreciate it. But it's not it's not like the old no, ones, right? And it's not maybe great, but it's awful good. Yeah, well, that's I mean, all of them are are really good. If we'd we'd all be better off if 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 Gene's you know worst novels not not, not accepting Operation Aries were uh, were the sta- were the bottom <laughs> standard. Right. So, I don't know. See, things are behind other things. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like um, The Sailor Who Sailed After oh, the Sun. Oh, God, I love that. Yeah. 
I love it. I, I, that's that's got a good mix yeah. of his old style and the new style. We have that little conversation oh, with the monkey and, and, and the, the boy. And the end that is just heartbreaking and beautiful. Right. Yeah. yeah. Joan, this has really been great. I really appreciate your time. I mean, the dog's been really patient and my feet are really clean. I I meant to warn you that I'm a bit like uh, Thecla when Severian walks in herself. Well, so. you know, she's trying to put off the inevitable. <laughs> well, aren't we all? Well, Joan, I really like this, and uh, and I want to I want to do it again sometime. Okay. Not only will I probably uh, contact you and say let's do it again, but uh, if anytime you feel like hey I've got something to say I've got a I've got a crazy theory, then you should just uh, just shoot me an email and uh, and we'll have and you and and this was stress free. See there. <laughs> I promised it would be. about that. It's been a very busy day. I went to a ladies' luncheon, and that's certainly going to be stressful. <laughs> but fortunately, somebody told me what to do. You, when, when a lady goes to a lady luncheon, she wears black pants, a cute top, and a statement necklace. I will remember that next time I go. You should. So, so if you ever have to go to a ladies' luncheon, just remember... Black pants, cute top, statement necklace, and you'll be set. Okay. Well, I'll have to choose from my statement necklaces. So I know. So I mean, my mother gave me the advice for a wedding, which is that a floral print is always correct, and you can use that as well. That is my watchword. <laughs> hey, thank you. You have a good night. Thank you. Good night. So that's it. I really had a good time with this, and I certainly expect some time in the future. I'll entice Joan into my van again with the promise of candy and puppies. But until then, you can file your comments and complaints at the Rereading Wolf Facebook group or at Rereading Wolf on Twitter or by email at rereadingwolf at gmail.com. Did you know there's a Rereading Wolf podcast subreddit? But the most useful thing you can do to spread the word of this podcast is to mention it to someone who would like it. But keep this channel open until the next time we send out our coded numbered series. Until then, that's all, folks. I've got a theory that it's a demon, a dancing demon. No, something isn't right there. I've got a theory, some kid is dreaming, and we're all stuck inside his wacky Broadway nightmare. I've got a theory we should work this out. It's getting eerie, what's this cheery singing all about? It could be witches, some evil witches, which is ridiculous, because witches, they were persecuted, wicked, good, and love the earth and women power, and I'll be over here. I've got a theory, it could be Barney's. I've got a Now the cat, one of the cats is coming in.
In my interview with Joan Gordon, we discussed my theory of the fifth head of Cerberus. I struggled doing so as one tends to do with any comprehensive explanation of these novellas. As with our talk, this will be spoilery. This book, as I've said before, is the one that taught me how to read Gene Wolfe. When I first read The Book of the New Sun, I read it as a man in a dream. This was the book that made me realize he was a master. So I recommend that before listening to this, you read the book at least twice. It bears rereading. And as with all Wolf's best novels, every turn offers a new idea or vision. And then after, check this out if you want to. Naturally, it's up to you, though. Here's the overview. Number five in John V. Marsh, that is VRT, the supplanter of Dr. Marsh, they are twins. Specifically, they are the twins, John Sandwalker and John Eastwind. Sandwalker with a double V in the middle of his name for five, a la John V. Marsh and VRT. Eastwind, Eastwind, Gene Wolf. Aunt Janine is their mother. Cedar Branch is waving. She has supplanted Dr. Vale, and that is why the false Dr. Marsh comes to visit her, not due to an anthropological interest in Vale's hypothesis. He already knows more about the persistence of Abos than Dr. Vale ever did. The middle story, that is, a story by John V. Marsh, is two stories laid cleanly over each other. First story, the story of the birth of Sandwalker and Eastwind, Eastwind's abduction, Sandwalker's vision quest on their 14th birthday, and Eastwind, shortly afterward, meeting the arriving humanity, a human named Gene Wolfe, whom he would eventually supplant. Second story, the story of the death of Dr. Marsh and VRT's hunt for his mother after assuming the doctor's identity, his imprisonment, and his eventual freedom, and what happened after. Oh yeah, R. Trenchard is a clone from St. Croix. So if you've got what you were waiting around for, you can leave now. Otherwise, what follows is my attempted demonstration of the texts. I should say that there are certain details that were only fleshed out when I attempted to convince Brandon and Glenn of the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast how wrong they were in their interpretation of the novel. But nothing here conforms to their own perspective. They are in no way to blame for what I say next. Still, some of it would not be possible without the conversation they offered. The second novella of the three-novella novel, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, is different from the other two. It's tonally different. It's a seeming fantasy quest story of a young Abo boy in the back of the beyond on the planet St. Anne before the arrival of humanity. It is entitled A Story by John V. Marsh. Dr. Marsh was the name of a scientist who recently arrived from Earth. He appears to have made a couple key appearances in the brothel on St. Croix in the town of Port Mimizan in the first novella, The Fifth Head of Cerberus. The third novella is told from journal entries found among the property of a prisoner on the same planet. Dr. Marsh seems to have died on St. Anne. This prisoner has replaced him. So the question is, why is the second novella, a story by John V. Marsh, here? Is there anything in this second story that is factual exposition about the real abos? 
What could this writer know about real Avos? Was it written by Dr. Marsh or the imposter? Is it fiction or is it real? And when was it written? The name John V. Marsh with the V middle initial seems to imply that it refers to the prisoner who has taken on Dr. Marsh's identity. Incidentally, notice that the middle initial V is the Roman numeral five. That will be important. Also, notice that John V. Marsh eschews the title doctor. But again, assuming a story was written by the false Marsh, when and where was it written? On St. Anne, during his travels, in the back of the beyond, in prison? What I'm going to contend, and try to some extent to demonstrate, is that it was neither. A story by John V. Marsh was written after the false Marsh was released from prison, when As a story, the middle novella relates, John V. Marsh has become the spiritual leader of a revolution on the blue planet of St. Croix, a political revolution by a group known as the 5th of September. Notice the 5th again. The story is fiction, but only fictional in the sense that is jumbled events from the author's life in an original pattern. That is to say, it is like a lot of fiction. But this story is two stories laid over each other. That said, there is still a wealth of ideas and themes in this story besides, but hidden in all that wolfiness, right at the center, is an old-fashioned plot. As with summarizing a Seinfeld episode, it's hard to explain a Gene Wolfe story without retelling the whole thing. I'll try to avoid doing that, but the first story is of the birth of a pair of twins, Sandwalker and Eastwind, born as abos in human form on a planet without any humanity as we typically define it. Eastwind is abducted by a tribe that makes its living fishing the Meadowmeres, and John V. Marsh cleverly refers to them as the Marshmen, because his story is not only going to refer to the tribe of the Meadowmeres of St. Anne, but also to the waters of Port Mimizan on the blue St. Croix. During the abduction, their grandmother was murdered, drowned. Avos don't use tools. Their mother was cedar branches waving. On Sand Walker's 14th birthday, he is sent on a spiritual quest, and shortly after, Eastwind encounters and greets a star-crossing human, the first of the Avos to do so, at least this time. Also notice that in the very middle of Sand Walker's name, is a W, originally a double V, still pronounced that way in some languages. The second story takes place almost a century later, and it is of an abo, that same Sandwalker, now going by the name V.R. Trenchard. Notice the V again, who has led Dr. Marsh into the back of the beyond where the good doctor has died, tragically. The story starts at the moment of that death, and tells, in loose allegory fashion, how Sandwalker traveled in search of his mother, discovers she is among the Marshmen and her other son on St. Croix. And upon seeking her out there, is imprisoned. With the help of the powerful shadow children, he is freed by a revolution. A revolution that he himself has inspired with his writings from prison. He executes Eastwind's Marshman guardian-slash-captor, and then he executes Eastwind in an ambiguous fashion that Wolf prefers for the end of his stories. Then, 
free and respected, he writes the famous A Story. That's the title. Under the name John B. Marsh. It's all there in the second novella, with a few direction gestures in the other novellas. And more. Hmm. Now, where to begin? I'm going to tell a story. Let's call it A Story by James V. Wynn. Along the way, I'll try to explain how I arrived at the elements of the story. But first, let me clarify some things that you might or might not have noticed. Number five, the protagonist of the first novella, and John V. Marsh, uh, or VRT, Sand Valker, the prisoner in the third novella. They are twins. We know they are twins because we have learned that Abu twins, Ani's twins, share consciousness especially during dreams. How do we know they are doing that? Well, one, there's that dream number five has. Once I had a dream of standing on a paved court, fenced with Corinthian pillars, so close set that I could not force my body between them. Although in the dream, I was only a child of three or four. After trying various places for a long time, I had noticed that each column was carved with a word. The only one I could remember was carapace, and that the paving stones of the courtyard were mortuary tablets, like those set into the floors in some of the old French churches, with my own name and a different date on each. The dream is of the circle of trees on St. Anne that VRT led Dr. Marsh to. Oh yes, the trees, Corinthian pillars, you see, are pillars with ornate leafy tops. Number five describes them as being so close together that he couldn't force his body between them. Dr. Marsh said of the trees in his journal, the foliage of each tree may almost have touched the next. Certainly from a distance, they must have appeared to form a continuous wall, except for the portion immediately ahead of the observer. But number five has never seen these trees. They were cut down before he was born, or concocted, however it was done. Also, the child number five proffers that the original colonists of St. Anne might have come from Gondwana land, the theorized ancient supercontinent. And later, John V. Marsh records that a shadow child says the same thing. Another clue. Well, Wolf does this from time to time. He puts two clues together that are the proofs of each other. Sitting next to each other in the context Wolf provides, they make no sense. But then you imagine them as something else, not belonging to each other directly, but belonging to each other in a spiritual way. Suddenly each explains the other. In this case, I'm talking about R. Trenchard, the Saint Anne beggar who claims to be an abo and his supposed son, known as V.R. Trenchard, V.R.T. You know, the V. The two Trenchards are alike enough that Dr. Marsh can well believe that they are father and son. Trenchard says he's Annie's and his son is half Annie's, but V.R. Trenchard has more specific information about the Annie's than R. Trenchard does. The truth that I must axiomatically declare is that R. Trenchard is a clone, one of the duplicates from St. Croix one of the many that so completely populate the planet that it is said to have a planetary face. That VRT looks like RT is more evidence, a begging-the-question clue. 
but one that, when embraced, makes that story finally hang together. Evidence that VRT and number five are twins. Let me begin. A story by James V. Wynn, perhaps 180 years or so previous to the murder of Maitre in the first eponymous novella, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, the French explorers landed on a planet that would be known as St. Anne. These numbers are based on the Cicerone Sinister chapbook by Robert Borsky and Michael Andre Drisi. I don't agree with all their conclusions, of course, but it's not a bad reference. Since I don't at this time intend to build my own timeline, I'll use that. The atmosphere is the same as Earth's. This is never explained, and doesn't have to be because this is a staple of science fiction. Alternately, Wolf considered himself to be a speculative fiction writer, not science fiction. Certainly not hard science fiction. This story is not about worlds we might actually encounter in the universe. It's about what would happen if a very specific set of circumstances were set up. Now, on this planet happened to be a life form that had a remarkable ability to mimic anything it encountered, and its nature was that it had to. So some would mimic clouds and some running water and some lava flow. They interacted with each other's mimicry and mimicked themselves in turn, and they formed bizarre animals. These creatures were also to some degree apparently psychic, but that's really only applying a 20th century term to whatever ability they had to influence their environment and communicate with each other by means that are left unexplained. These creatures were the only life form on the planet. Given the themes of colonization explored in these novellas, there is substantial basis for assuming the creature was a transplant, specifically designed by a passing interstellar civilization left behind quite some time before the arrival of the French. This story is not about puzzling out years of timelines. An another interjection. The novella VRT begins with a quote from a Carol Chopic story from the point of view of a cat. It goes, but don't think that I am at all interested in you. You have warmed me, and now I will go out again and listen to the dark voices. Not bad. There's a cat in the third story. There's a cat in the second story. There's some vague reference to dark voices in both stories, but there is not much to demonstrate why the quote should introduce any of these stories. Because this quote is not itself the reference. It's not the clue. It's a clue to the clue. It's supposed to point the reader to the true reference. What is important about this quote is not the story where it is found, but the author who wrote it. Carol Chopek is primarily known for a seminal science fantasy play, R-U-R. This play, Note the initialization of the title, just like the third novella, V-R-T. This play, from which the term robot comes, does offer insight. It is also foundational because here, in the first introduction of the term robot, in science fiction, the story turns on a robot rebellion. In R-U-R, a corporation is founded that produces artificially slaves from a universal organic material produces them in a fashion that makes them indistinguishable from humans. It was founded by a physiologist who had come to a remote island to study sea life, but 
he discovered a material that behaved just the same as living tissue, despite being chemically quite different. A way of organizing living matter, which is simpler, easier to mold, and quicker to produce than nature ever stumbled across. It could grow out into an entire tree of life made of all the animals, starting with a tiny coil of life and ending with, ending with man himself. Using this slime, he could make whatever he wanted. He could have made a Medusa with a brain of Socrates or a worm 50 feet long. The discoverer of the material was named Rossum. His motives were purely theoretical. He wanted to become a sort of scientific substitute for God. He was a fearful materialist, and that's why he did it. His sole purpose was nothing more nor less than to prove that God was no longer necessary. Uh, this translation is by Paul Selver and Nigel Playfair. He had a younger ward, and they were called Young Rossum and Old Rossum. The two quarreled continually until young Rossum shut him up in some laboratory or other and let him fritter the time away with his monstrosities. Then young Rossum set about mass producing and filling the island with humanoid slaves. The play ends with the robots revolting and completely supplanting humanity. The allusions of this story to the first novella are, I think, too obvious for me to belabor. This is the story of the original human Gene Wolfe, his shutting away into Mr. Million and his supplanting line of assistance. It also suggests a practical purpose for a shape-changing creature like the Anis and the eventual revolution on the planet St. Croix. After all, a material like that seems a bit too radical to arise in nature. That's why I say that the original form of the Anis were a transplant from some passing civilization many years before. I'll continue my story. As the only animal life form on the planet, whatever their form, other mimics were their only food. Look, given how quickly the abos seem to replace humans, it's hard to imagine that any local life they encountered would not soon be replaced as well. The plant the shadow children chew is probably not an abo. There might be other plants native to the planet. Certainly, all the higher life forms on St. Anne that are not a transport from Earth are abos. Every one of them that Sandwalker hunts and encounters, including the ghoul bear and the tire tiger. When the French explorers arrived on St. Anne, they encountered these creatures and understood that their default form was the lurid white worms that hung around the roots and holes and the branches of the, quote, trees. If they ever came to have a theory about the reproductive cycle of the native creatures, they probably believed them to reproduce parthenogenically. What they probably never came to understand was that the trees were the ultimate reproductive form of the males of the species. A rare percentage of the males would live long enough to encounter just the right circumstances to adopt the reproductive form. The creatures were clustering around the trees to reproduce. The actual mechanics of how this tree form caused reproduction is not explored in these stories, nor is it explained to my satisfaction how they came to or chose to arrange themselves in the circle, numbering exactly the number of days in Anani's years. The point is that they weren't planted. But during this time, the French settlers began encountering people, apparent humans, 
And this was how they understood the degree to which the native species could copy other life forms. These humans were, they quickly discovered, mimics. Animals, closely mimicking human behavior, albeit a wild, pre-technology culture. Or perhaps they even discovered these mimics among themselves. But some of these encounters were surely violent. The explorers autopsied the mimic bodies. They discovered that the most human-like versions were only superficially so. They had brains in their chests. Not surprising if their default forms lacked heads. As the explorers saw it, these were different forms of the other creatures they had been using as protein in their diets. So they did not have a problem with eating these as well. The mimics adopted their own cultural restrictions against cannibalism. Not eating members categorized as us. They formed tribes, and these tribes developed their own rituals. But soon after their arrival, very soon, the explorers encountered a plant with psychotropic properties and began using it enthusiastically. It was poisonous when eaten, but could be safely chewed once a month. They centered their lives around the use of this plant, giving up any interest in the basics of survival and scientific inquiry. They adopted a philosophy under the power of the narcotic, that the physical world was irrelevant, that what mattered was only what they perceived the world to be, that only the mind mattered. Now, there are two possibilities for what happened next. One is that the drug gave the French colonists an actual physical power, a power over space-time itself. They could communicate by vibrating it. In groups, they could bend it. The lifelong use of the drug gave this power, but also deformed them physically. They physically shrank to the size of children. They could not tolerate the sun. It also increased their lifespans significantly. Their descendants using the drug all their lives look the same. For this, we have given up everything, because this is more than anything. Though it is only an herb of this world, the leaves are wide, warty, and gray, the flowers yellow, the seed pink prickled eggs. Another valid possibility is that soon after using this drug, the French settlement soon fell apart, the explorers losing the capacity to survive or the will to care. But before it did, they had a peculiar effect on the mimics that encountered them at this time. These mimics with their psychic abilities, form themselves into a distorted version of the explorer's physical form, interacting with the naked, free-associating minds of the explorers. These mimics formed into small, shriveled versions of the humans. They thought of themselves as the original tribe of humans, at least when they were in anything but the smallest groups. Rather than tribes, they might have been as accurately described as task forces, they had no names other than those of the task force roles inherited by humans. As their numbers grew or shrank, their names would change, as their roles would. They gained and retained significant knowledge of the French settlers' history and culture, although it was often muddled. If the shadow children themselves are not sure which is true, and they are not, how can the reader be? The group Norm said that they came to St. Anne either recently or very long ago. The single shadow child left in the pit with the Annies said, I hear your song and I wish to live too. I am not perhaps of your blood, but I wish to live. The group Norm said, 
I know that we were always here listening to the thoughts that did not come, listening without thought of our own to be men. Or it may be that all are of one stock, half remembering and dwindling, half forgetting and flourishing. Either way, they were known to the abos as shadow children, referencing their small size and the fact that they only come out at night. And they were, in some ways, the nearest shadows of the original explorers, whether they were originally human or not. Due to their use of this poisonous plant, their bites were poisonous. Either way, as I said, they could communicate through space-time and manipulate it. They used this ability to bend space-time around St. Anne to hide it from the rest of humanity. They called their use of this ability singing. Each song had a specific use and was sung without variation. Imagine the song of a 1990s computer connection to the internet. The song they sang to bend space-time around the planet St. Anne was called The Bending Sky Path Song That None May Come. In this story, St. Anne, especially in the back of the beyond, is fairyland. As for Wolf's Fairyland in the Sorcerer's House, it is notable for its high lethality. The story says, in Sandwalker's own short life, he had seen how many children come and how few live. And like fairy, it cannot be found unless you are invited. This is accomplished via the Shadow Children's ability to bend space-time. This is how St. Anne went undiscovered during the entire time St. Croix was settled and owned by the French. Now, how do we know they have this power? They describe the shaking their singing causes as a shaking of space-time itself. As an analogy, the group norm reminds Sandwalker that his own people's singing is the shaking of air. He says, But when we sing, it is not the air that shakes. We shake extension. Hold your hands before you thus, not touching. Now think of your hands gone. That is what we shake. That is to say, take away mass and atmosphere, they shake what is left, space-time itself, that is, extension. Sandwalker calls it nothing. The group norm says, that which you call nothing is what holds all things apart. When it is gone, all the worlds will come together in a fiery death from which new worlds will be born. Anyone who has read the Book of the New Sun and Earth of the New Sun will recognize this as, again, the description of the Grand Ganab, the opposite of the Big Bang. When the expanding universe, it is not matter that expands, but space itself, when the expanding universe loses momentum and collapses in on itself, again, it is space-time itself that collapses. As a shadow child named Wolf said, we have sung to hold the star crossers back. We desired to live as we wished, unreminded of what was and is, and though they have bent the sky, we have bent their thought. And so, as I said, when subsequent French explorers arrived, the first team were assumed lost. When they arrived, the shadow children caused them not to see St. Anne. They flew by it and settled on the sister planet, which they named St. Croix. As the settlement grew, no one on St. Croix saw that world that dominated their sky. Some 70 years later, an inter-system war broke out between the French and English-speaking powers. St. Croix was one of the systems in dispute. 
And as the war raged above them and on St. Croix, the sister world remained hidden. As the second novella relates, the twins, Sandwalker and Eastwind, were born 14 years before the arrival of the English. Their grandmother was drowned and Eastwind stolen. Eastwind lived with the tribe of the Meadowmeres. Then one day, a shadow child, captured by the Meadowmeres tribe and needing a distraction, lifted the mental veil and called down a passing military vessel from the English-speaking combatants. They landed, finding what they believed to be French-speaking settlers living in destitute poverty. No one agonized over the suddenly appearing planet above St. Croix. The English were newcomers. For the French on St. Croix, the veil had been lifted. The human mind's ability at resolving cognitive dissonance did the rest. The shadow children had vanished. Who named the planet St. Anne? That's not knowable. I could argue either way. The sister world of St. Croix retained its name, even after the English speakers dominated the system. Based on Dr. Marsh's investigations, we see that the early rural English settlers soon understood what the French explorers had before them, that that St. Anne was populated by a shape-changing life form that mimicked human form and sentience. As did the explorers, the English did not consider passing the Turing test to be sufficient credentialing for personhood. But the scientists that investigated did not find any indisputable evidence of the existence of these aboriginal creatures. They only found a wide variety of wildlife species, which were, ironically, the very Annies they were seeking. The Annies tribes seemed to have been wiped out if they were ever more than folklore. It didn't help that the Annies living among them often spread the opinion that they were gone and never existed. The shadow children themselves hid in the back of the beyond, hidden from the minds of human inquiry. There's a whole question about how mimicking urban humanity might have prevented John Sandwalker from taking on a dryad tree form. It doesn't matter here. And when the English came, Eastwind was the first to greet an English arrival, a man named Gene Wolfe, probably a scientist. And yes, Eastwind had just whipped the Marsh man mentor to his death, just as described in A Story just as R. Trenchard relates. This Eastwind was R. Trenchard's ancestor, as he says, because Gene Wolfe took this abo boy with him to St. Croix. He opened a brothel there. His protege quickly learned all about, well, whatever it was Gene Wolfe knew about. Just as his twin would do under the influence of Dr. Marsh, his protege began to mimic old Gene Wolfe and adopt his style so well people thought of him as his son. It is credible that he began calling himself Gene Wolfe as well. East Wind, Gene Wolfe. Eventually, with the assistance of young Gene Wolfe, old Gene Wolfe had his brain sliced with a laser and mimicked by a mobile computer. He became known as Mr. Million. That is, last voice in the second novella. From a story, we can understand what Maitre was attempting to accomplish with the experiments. As with Last Voice and East Wind, they were creating duplicates who, under the influence of a drug made from the Shadow Children's plant, can search the minds of star-crossers coming from Earth and search Sandwalker's minds for the secrets of the Shadow Children's power over space-time. There are any number of things they could be probing for. The goal of Last Voice and East Wind is simply not completely clear. 
Incidentally, notice that Last Voice must ritually pluck his beard every day, just as human Gene Wolfe and his supplanters shave every day. As with young Rossum, young Gene Wolfe generates duplicates of himself with such enthusiasm that, as I mentioned, it will be said of St. Croix that it has a planetary face. Young Gene Wolfe generates a twin who supplants him. This third Gene Wolfe creates another duplicate known as Maitre. For whatever conscious motivation Maitre murdered and supplanted number three, as we'll call him, he's never named. Just as number three had replaced East Wind, and East Wind replaced the priest and then the human old Gene Wolfe. He in turn creates his own duplicate, whom he designates number five. Number five does the same to Maitre. Each of the new Gene Wolfe duplicates needs a human in proximity to mimic early on in order to properly develop and maintain a human mind. This is evident from the third novella when during a long period of solitary confinement, the prisoner, John V. Marsh, VRT, Sandwalker, loses the ability to speak until a new prisoner arrives nearby. Maitre was raised with a human female, Aubrey Vale, Dr. Aubrey Vale. Dr. Vale assumed that she was the control. In fact, she was the anchor. When Maitre produced a duplicate, number five, he assigned him a human anchor, an analogy, David, just as he had had. Maitre must have considered the possibility that this heir was an existential threat, just as he had been to number three. It is entirely possible that he intended to murder number five, sell him into slavery, or exile him to St. Anne. However, given that Maitre and number five were psychically the same mind, number five's belief that Maitre intended consciously or subconsciously to murder him should be given significant weight. But given that they were of the same mind, his paranoia about being murdered might have just as well come from Maitre's own mind. Either way, their reactions to their paranoia would be the same. But we've moved beyond the narrative of a story. That is the end of the first story related in A Story by John V. Marsh. Between the stories is a narrative that can only be inferred. For the Anis to be long-lived but appear young or old at will is still a power retained by them in the rural parts of St. Anne. One could presume that those abos that are generated by the wolves are not so long-lived, but like St. Anne, St. Croix is a very dangerous place, so who knows? The story doesn't address that. Sandwalker and Cedar Branches Waving alternate their time between St. Anne's settlements and the back of the beyond. When Marsh of Earth encountered him, he was living with his, quote, father, R. Trenchard. Under the influence of number five's mind, he began to use the initial V in his name for five, even when he adopts a new identity. V. R. Trenchard. His mother, has left, and he doesn't know where. Where she has gone is to St. Croix to live with her other son, Eastwind, that is, Maitre, and number five. She knew she could find him there just by looking at Trenchard. She supplants Dr. Aubrey Vale, Maitre's anchor foster sister, and goes by the name Aunt Janine. Number five says of her, That is the way I still remember her, as the Black Queen a chess queen neither sinister nor beneficent, and black only as distinguished from some white queen I was never fated to encounter. Dr. Vale was the white queen that number five never met. Aunt Janine does not even speak of Dr. Vale as herself. 
she also has that universal signifier of female abos in the first and third novellas, artificial legs, legs that have had work done on them. And so it is apparent from the original novella, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, that all these stories were there from the start. The story of Sandwalker in Eastwind, their mother who supplants Dr. Vale, and the visitor Marsh being number five's twin, and even the circle of trees on St. Anne. These were not constructed by Wolf after the fact when he was asked to elaborate on the original novella. Notice the nine in Janine's name. It's spelled with two N's in the middle, so that her name cleanly bifurcates into two full words. Jean, nine. This will come up in a bit. Notice the parallel with Aunt Janine. Just as Sandwalker did when he took Dr. Marsh's identity, she does not use the doctor title. Also, we are alerted to this from a story because Sandwalker goes to find his mother among the Marshmen. Don't interject that this is all circular begging the question. If you ever credibly explain one of these god-awful wolf labyrinths, you'll see that you have to do it too. It's in the design. Aunt Janine denies the persistence of the Annies because it would not benefit her for number five, a member of the St. Croix tribe, to start looking for abos around every corner. But she picks at the validity of Dr. Vale's theory based on quite reasonable details. This demonstrates the skill of Wolf's world building in that he doesn't have the secret arcane theory be 100% true. It's an error in some ways. Dr. Vale was not an abo. There's no evidence David was supplanted. A lesser writer would have had the murdered scientist be correct about every detail, and that was why she had to be killed. But it is true, as number five and Aunt Janine talk, that it is accurate to say, in the moment, the abos are us. And as with Marsh, she was probably not supplanted as part of an overall plan. It is in the nature of the Annies to mimic and supplant. Let's talk about the second story in a story. It occurs to me as I say this that it is appropriate to talk about a story architecturally, to have a first story and a second story, like a house, because these stories are laid over each other like stories of a building. The story of V.R. Trenchard, V.R.T., starts as an allegory when Sandwalker arrives at the cave in Thunder Always Gorge, a holy site of the Abos at one time. VRT brings Dr. Marsh there. As I said, at no point does VRT slash Sandwalker seem to have any intent to supplant Dr. Marsh. He doesn't plan for what happens to him. Mimicking and supplanting are in his nature. Like I said, he is just an animal, after all. Dr. Marsh's journal is filled with lies that VRT made up, but this story tells the tale of how Sandwalker. VRT became John V. Marsh, the Liberator. In this story, Dr. Marsh is the owl mice, the fame pheasant, the tick deer. Sandwalker brought two of these things as sacrifices to the apparently mummified priest. But they were all actually eaten by the shadow children. In Dr. Marsh's last entry, half asleep, he sees the shadow children and seven girls waiting standing over him, apparently choosing the best parts. Seven girls waiting seems to retain the ability to take on a cat form when she wishes. From a story in the segment where Sandwalker comes upon the shadow children eating the tick deer that he, these are his words, 
drove to them, we see that VRT demanded his share of Dr. Marsh's body. Now we come back to the allegory of the story. As we talk about the second story, I must reiterate that the first story is still there and true with some requisite degree of ambiguity. The Annie's boy sent out on a quest by his mother and old bloody finger and flying feet. The hourglass called the other eye by the Metamere's tribe was actually used to hold victims. The Metamere tribe did call the observatory the eye. And since Eastwind met the arriving English, we know this all happened before that moment. The story of the captured shadow children is not completely factually accurate for the first story, however, because the twins were not reunited at that time. The conversations with the shadow children are part of one story or the other or both. It is not evident, for example, when Sandwalker was named a shadow friend by them, whether it was before they arrived or after the death of Dr. Marsh. But it is all basically true. The rituals described are real and no doubt occurred, just as described. Sandwalker's search for a dream. All of it. John V. Marsh, VRT, Sandwalker, calls the tribe of the Metamere's Marshmen, and he says that the name of a shadow child that is alone is Wolf. The first was obviously chosen by John V. Marsh for his story. He was hiding among the allegorical Marshmen on St. Croix. Eastwind's army of duplicates. As with that earlier tribe that abducted Eastwind, his twin was still among them. The naming of the lone shadow child wolf seems very coincidental, but coincidences do happen. But the shadow children do not harm Sandwalker in this encounter because, as the group norm says, the group norm, the entity that represents their collective conscience, he says, he is sacred. Why is he sacred? The group norm names him shadow friend and teaches him to call for their help when he requires it. He is sacred because the shadow children whose power manipulates space time itself can see VRT's future and his role in the overthrow of the government of St. Croix. He is the hero like Severian and perhaps other wolf protagonists to whom supporters gather because they know he will rise, which causes him to rise. After some years, Sandwalker followed his mother to St. Croix. Who is the marshman that the shadow children blinded and ate? The marshman that told Sandwalker that his mother was among the marsh tribe? Possibly Trenchard. Tough luck, R. Trenchard. From a story, we learn that the point of Matra's experiments on number five is to use his psychability to spy on the travelers from Earth and sometimes to spy on Sandwalker on St. Anne. Perhaps the object was to seize power of the shadow children, like I said. It does seem arguable from a story that the Maison Duchesne contained captured shadow children. From a story we learn of other Anis on St. Croix. John V. Marsh describes them as imprisoned there, but that could as well mean simply oppressed or in hiding. His mother is there, of course, but others, he names, leaves you can eat, Old Bloody Finger and Sweet Mouth. Mr. Million implies that Aunt Janine died when number five was in prison, but apparently he at most had her arrested. Even if he didn't, if he figured out that she was an imposter when he was alone in the house without a young wolf, there's any number of reasons why he would have lied about her disappearance from the house. As I said, 
of the conversations Sandwalker has with the Shadow Children while imprisoned in the hourglass, it is simply not possible to know whether this actually happened as told or as an amalgamation of conversations he had with them throughout his time as a shadow friend. The line he puts in the shadow child's mouth, all great political movements of history were born in prisons. It's a foreshadowing because everyone knows at that point that this is where the great John V. Marsh's revolution began. But he might have picked up this line in prison and put it in a shadow child's mouth. There's really no way of knowing. What we know from a story is that with the help of the shadow children, there was a revolution, a political revolution based on John V. Marsh's writings from prison. But Sandwalker's writings from prison, writings prompted from his tutelage under the shadow children of St. Anne, for example, when there is no opportunity to act, it is always wise to talk a great deal discussing what has been done and what may be done. When nothing can be done, all the great political movements of history were born in prison. These writings became the foundation of a revolutionary group called the 5th of September. Sandwalker had given the name of his revolutionary political movement to a fellow prisoner as a joke. What does that mean? The 5th of September? There's that number, five. The word September can mean alternately seven or nine. Septum literally means seven in Latin. September was the seventh month of the old Roman calendar. After Julius Caesar's reform, it became the ninth month of the year. So it either means the fifth of seven or the fifth of nine. Seven for the five gene wolves, that is human gene wolf and Mr. Million, East Wind, number three, Maitre, and number five, plus the human, Dr. Marsh, and Sandwalker, who is VRT, or John B. Marsh. Or it can mean fifth of nine, to include Dr. Vale and Cedar Branches Waving, who became Aunt Janine, Gene Nine. I told you this would come up. The revolution was no fluke. It was helped along by fellow Anis on St. Croix, as well as the assistance of Sandwalker's Shadow Children allies. Perhaps they called down a new power from Earth to take over St. Croix, one inspired by some disjointed form of John V. Marsh's writings. Anyway, St. Croix government had reason to be suspicious of spies from St. Anne. The final part of the story is completely non-historical. It's allegory. I'll do the best I can. Upon the overthrow of the government, Sandwalker, known as the political revolutionary John V. Marsh, was released and went to his twin, number five, at the head of a revolutionary army, no doubt. A negotiation that was apparently abetted by their mother. Together, Sandwalker and number five dismantled Mr. Million. That's the part of them whipping Last Voice to death in a story. Number five explains that Mr. Million was based on a human, a Starwalker. He says, he was a hillman. All Starwalkers must be born in the high country. To be a hillman in this allegory does not mean to be of Sandwalker's tribe, but to have come from the sky, whether St. Anne, like Sandwalker, and Eastwind, or Earth. Number five offers to undergo the operation to become a new simulation, a new Mr. Million. Sandwalker asks, and you rule the marsh now? Eastwind said, my head 
must be burned as his was, then yes. Sandwalker is not forgiving. He prefers to have number five executed. But shadow children warn him that this is not so simple. And why should I let you live? You would have drowned our mother. You are no man, and I can kill you. If he dies, the old wise one's voice whispered to Sandwalker, something of you dies with him. Let him die. It is a part of me I wish to kill. Would he slay you thus? He would have drowned us all. You slay him now for hate. Would he have slain you so? Sandwalker says, of course he would. He is like me. But the Shadow Children try something else. What else they did exactly is up for debate. I'll give one. It's only right that I try. But it is satisfying enough. They give number five a hypnotic suggestion that during his dreams, he and Sandwalker switch places. And then they inject him with an overdose of the drug that Maitre always gave to number five, the drug number five was giving to his new protege, the drug that was made from the Shadow Children's plant. And as he died, Sandwalker does feel something very strange happen to him. And from that time, he himself is never sure whether he is Sandwalker with number five's memories or Eastwind with Sandwalker's memories. But at last, number five's prediction, someday they'll want us, is fulfilled. They want them now on St. Croix. As the honorary president for life of St. Croix, sharing perhaps, he's never sure, the mind of number five, John V. Marsh, shadow friend, wrote a story, a secret biography in the form of an anthropological folktale, working in his own story and the lore from the shadow children. Thank you and good night. Behind a man